what I want to give to practitioners is that ability to deconstruct their own knowledge and rebuild it when, as they learn new things and to be able to ask those good questions and not just what do we got for sleep? I'm going to type that into PubMed. You have to be able to think about everything a lot more uh, complexly in order to be able to create the best solution for your patient. Hello and welcome to ND Inspo, where our mission is to help connect, grow, and inspire naturopathic doctors and students from all over. My name is Dr. Kirsten DeWitt, and today I have with me Dr. Jordan Robertson. Dr. Jordan is a naturopathic doctor, clinic owner, and author. Her background in critical appraisal and research led her to develop and implement courses on research in integrative medicine and nutrition at McMaster University for 10 years and has gifted her numerous speaking opportunities and education opportunities across Canada and the U.S. Dr. Robertson is also the off-site naturopathic doctor for McMaster Hospital Endometriosis Clinic and owns an integrative medical center called Clarity Health in Burlington, Ontario. She's also the host of Women's Health Unplugged podcast and owns the Confident Clinician, an evidence-based education platform for integrative practitioners. So I'm so happy to have you with us today, Dr. Jordan, because you've been a growing inspiration for myself and I know for so many others in the field of naturopathic medicine, both clinically as well as that entrepreneurship side, right? As I mentioned, you have so many, so many things kind of backing you up here. Um, so I'm just, I'm excited to dive in today and talk a little bit more about, you know, what it means to be an evidence-based naturopathic doctor and practitioner. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. It's funny after you're listing all of those things, I'm like, oh, <laughs> that's why I'm on vacation right now. <laughs> yes. yes. And we were just talking about even that to me is inspiring that you're taking this time for yourself. You know, you mentioned taking at least four weeks out, which you know, European cultures get it. So many other cultures get that we need this chunk of time to help prevent burnout, which is so prevalent in medicine. Um, so even that is inspiring. It's like, it's being, you know, being a role model for other doctors and showing them how we could be providing that care for ourselves too. So, so even that is inspiring. So the Thank you. Thank you <laughs> for showing us how it can be done. Um, but I just kind of wanted to start with, you know, because um, I was thinking about this, you know, normally I start out with what brought you to naturopathic medicine, but it sounds like uh, the research is, is really where things started. So I'm just curious, like, where did your interest for research, um, you know, with that background in critical appraisal, where did that come from? Yeah, that's a great question. And that is kind of where it starts for me. So my undergraduate degree, I had sort of the good fortune of being part of um, McMaster's undergraduate health sciences program, which when I joined that program, it was only in its second year, I was the second cohort of that, um, of that 
class and it was really modeled after their medical school so if you're aware um, McMaster Medical School is renowned for their evidence-based but also problem-based inquiry method of teaching their students and so their students end up with a hands-on experience in medicine earlier than most medical schools they do small group learning there is a, a ratio of students to instructors that allow students to not just uh, like you know learn from their instructors but also develop themselves as learners to develop themselves as critical thinkers um, and develop the the skills that we often call the soft skills in medicine when truly like you know communication and empathy and all of those those are the hardest skills to learn <laughs> in medicine but that's what my undergraduate degree was actually based on was their medical school. So I had this, you know, sort of unique opportunity to be in small class sizes from day one of university. I never sat in a room of, you know, 500 students learning biology. We were in groups of 20 or less learning biology where you have that ability to develop yourself as a learner. You have the ability to ask good, hard questions about science and then also learn the skills and tools to answer those questions for yourself so even if we had questions you know our instructors would be like well how do you think you could find the answer to that mm -hmm. right versus giving us the information and then asking us to regurgitate it on a uh, multiple choice exam my learning from day one was like you got to figure this out jordan like what are your resources to answer this question about the cell or whatever it is that the questions that we had so my background in my undergrad was really in personal development. It was in time management. It was in communication because we had to be these independent learners from the beginning. And, and it was done under the guise of health sciences. So yes, I spent time in immunology and I spent time looking at, um, you know, some of those basic fundamental health science components, but it was all done through the lens of like, how do we turn you into a learning and critical appraising machine, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what my my background training was before I became a naturopathic doctor. Now, there, there it, it sounds on the surface level like that's a bit ironic to go into integrative medicine after you've spent all those years learning critical appraisal. But the reality is we have such great evidence for some of the things that naturopathic doctors do. Um, that to me, it was a, a beautiful marriage of, you know, the, the evolution of, of medicine and us understanding the importance of prevention, us understanding chronic disease from like a cardiometabolic perspective. And the, the evidence for that is so rich that I wanted to be a part of that. I wanted to meet patients at that stage of their health versus rescuing them in the operating room. Um, that's, that's, I just wanted to live earlier on in their health journey. Um, and we have such profound evidence to support what we can do for those patients that that was what drew me to um, to pursue naturopathic medicine is, is kind of where I got to live in the spectrum of someone's health care. I wanted to be at the beginning. Um, I wanted to be on the prevention side. And I knew that there were gaps in the way we were providing care for patients that I could fill. Um, and it let me use my communication skills, let me use my you know, all the other skills that I have, um, you know, versus, you know, you know being, I'm going to call it like stuck in the ER. My husband is a healthcare provider as well. And 
who actually left clinical practice because of the repetition and boredom and burnout, I, I feel so fortunate that that's not actually what my job is, right? Yeah. Well, and that's one of the things that I love about naturopathic medicine is that, you know, we're continuing to grow and you can't really get bored as a naturopathic doctor. There's just always, you know, either new research or just, there's just always something more to learn. And we do get that, um, you know, better engagement with our patients or clients, you know, depending on where you're practicing. Um, And, and so I think that like, you said that background and communication and and all of those soft skills, right? I think that's something that naturopathic doctors, you know, maybe develop a little bit more than some other doctors just because of the environment that we, you know, are in with our patients and that relationship that we have with them. Um, And so I'm curious, like, how did you learn about naturopathic medicine to begin with? Because, you know, most people have a little bit of a story to that there's it's not like the you know straightest path that we could take right so i'm just curious how you even learned about it to begin with yeah well that's to me that's kind of an ironic story given my background in research because (laughs) i essentially in my third year of undergrad i was kind of you know looking at what my options were um, looking at where I wanted to land, what my skill set was, how I wanted to basically spend my days, right? Like thinking about like, what does a job entail? Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew I liked nutrition. I knew I loved exercise, physiology, and medicine. I knew I loved prevention. And I literally put all of those things into a Google search bar. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that spit out was like, well, come spend a day at the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine. And I was like, what's a naturopath? <laughs> like, that was literally how it started. And I always say that this, like, this career move was like one of the most rash decisions I've ever made because I'm a very calculated person. Um, and I, Googled, found, applied, interviewed, and was accepted into the naturopathic college in a very short period of time. It was just the timing of how everything worked out meant that I, you know, I knew I was going like, you know, three or four weeks after I had realized I wanted to go. Um, But I I obviously would not trade that rash decision-making for anything because it's led me to such an exceptional career. Mm -hmm. Um, But it really, it was like, and and maybe when, by the time I found it, I was really ready for it, right? Like, you know, I know that sounds a little bit like flaky, but I had looked down, you know, did I want to be involved in emergency medicine? Did I want to be involved in paramedicine? Did I want to be involved in physio? Did I want to be a midwife? Did I want to, I literally looked at every clinical-based option in medicine and tried to figure out what fit my personality, what fit my goals. I, you know, was pretty sure I didn't want to work under the government-funded healthcare system. I was pretty sure I, you know, wanted some autonomy in my life um, around my work hours. You know, those were the things I kind of knew and I floated around from idea to idea to try and figure out what was going to fit with all of that. And by the time I found naturopathic medicine, I'm like, oh, there it is, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's the thing that actually allows me to do all of those, um, do all of those things and, and actually work to all my strengths. 
Yeah, I actually had a very similar that that is very similar to how I found naturopathic medicine as well was a Google search. My background was in dietetics. And so I was looking for, you know, further education um, and programs that continued with nutrition. And so that was something that I had popped into Google search and then up comes naturopathic medicine and just looking at all of what is covered with naturopathic medicine. I'm like, this is what, this is what it is. Like, this is the next step. And I had a very similar turnover rate of just like, okay, this is it, you know, taking that leap of faith. Um, so I love that. And so now I'm curious, um, which I know a little bit about, but I'd love for you to share some of how are you now intertwining and using that background and research in your practice to help create, you know, an evidence-based practice? You know, what does that look like for you um, to be able to kind of marry these, um, you know, your love and passion for our research with practice? Yeah, so I definitely don't use all of the tools that were, um, I actually don't even like to call them tools because I don't, I don't think of them as tools. Um, all of the subjects that were instructed in, in naturopathic medicine school are not all things that I incorporate as part of my clinical practice. Mm -hmm. um, and that I think is, you know, is part of sort of that evidence-based aspect is that I'm not willing to incorporate um, methodologies or um, styles or practice of, of integrative medicine that are not evidence-based. So there are certain things that are, are not included in my repertoire. Things like homeopathy are not um, included in my uh, clinical practice. I do some acupuncture, but it's, you know, you know, the acupuncture where we have really clear evidence for what the use would be. And we have lots of great evidence for acupuncture, but I, I don't, um, practice traditional Chinese medicine style of acupuncture where acupuncture can be used for everything. Um, you know, there are no energy modalities in my life or in my, in my clinic even. So even the practitioners that work for me, uh, you know, none of us include any of the, you know, homeopathy or any of those other aspects. So part of how I incorporate evidence-based practices just by being very selective as what kinds of aspects of, of naturopathic medicine actually make it into my, um, into my toolkit. Um, and the way that that looks like with working with patients is, you know, that we're, we're choosing to, you know, kind of live in the realm of, of naturopathic medicine where we have lots of evidence. So I do a lot of work in women's health. Why? Because that's where the evidence lies, right? That's the profound impact that we can have for a patient with polycystic ovarian syndrome. I want to hang out there, right? I want to hang out with those patients because what I can offer them is better and is complementary, meaning that we can enhance the effect of their conventional care I'm not willing to hang out in other medical conditions where the evidence pool of what we can offer patients is less, right? If patients come to me and they have atrial fibrillation, I'm like, cool, like we have a little bit of data for that, but that's not, I'm not going to be your primary care practitioner. When patients come to me and they have PCOS, I'm like, I'm going to drive this bus, right? And if your medical doctor wants to get on, cool. But this is something that I can really support you with. So part of the way that it shows up in my practice is just the, the groups of patients that we work with or that I work with are, you know, I've, I'm going to use the word niche, I guess, because that's the word that people can identify with, but I've niched in the areas that I know we can help, 
Mm -hmm. um, versus being a generalist that's willing to see everyone and offer my two cents of how to treat this naturopathically. That's not really the kind of practice that I want to have. I want to be, I want to play a major role in my patient's care. And therefore I work with patients that I know I can support. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and then even the protocols that we put together or that I put together for patients, I'm really clear where the evidence lies, um, with those patients. So does that mean I would you know, never use melatonin if we only had a, you know, a, a handful of studies. No, I'm going to talk to the patient about what the, what the actual evidence looks like and say, look, like this is where we are at with this particular ingredient, with this particular therapy option for you. And for patients that are seeking out an integrative approach, it's often because their value lies somewhere along the spectrum of them wanting to rely less on pharmaceuticals or wanting to have a more uh, autonomous role in their healthcare, and so even though they're, the the offer that I may give them um, maybe head to head has less evidence than a drug option, as long as patients understand that and they know where the evidence lies for why we would use something or why we wouldn't, then they get to make that like empowered choice for how they want their healthcare to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, that's how we incorporate it. That's how I incorporate it. I keep saying we, because I have a whole team of yeah. NDs that work for me and we're all very, uh, similar practitioners. Um, but that's what it looks like. And the other reason that I find this so valuable is because it puts me on a very level playing field with the rest of their medical team. I can have those high level conversations with their other practitioners and know that what I'm offering is like really amazing care. I'm not, I'm not butting heads with any other practitioners because we're all just um, staying in our lane of how we can support this patient. And what I'm bringing to the table is actually really great. Um, and I have the evidence to show that. And so, and I think that just breeds better interpersonal and interprofessional collaboration with other practitioners, which again, that's where I want to hang out. I want, I don't want to be a rogue practitioner that does wacky things that no one agrees with. I want to hang out on with their medical doctors and and be part of like their actual medical team. Mm -hmm. Are there other areas that you were considering that, you know, maybe have uh, great evidence to support them, like other niches that you were considering for maybe, um, and these that are listening that are like, well, women's health isn't really my thing. Like what other fields or what other niches might, you know, might I consider that also have, you know, where I can still be that evidence-based practitioner. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we have profound evidence for what we can do for patients with gastrointestinal health challenges, right? Whether it's IBS or supporting patients with IBD. Um, I think that's an area that we can um, have profound impact you know, weight management, um, helping patients support body composition and supporting lean tissue, strength, independence, preventing osteoporosis, right? Like that whole like sarcopenic obesity spectrum that patients live on from a cardiovascular health perspective. I think we have great work to be done in the cardiometabolic world. And when I say women's health, like I mean cardiometabolic health in women as well, right? Because when we look at, it's still their greatest health risk. It's still women's greatest health risk. So I think that whole realm is an area that we can have profound impact on helping support patients. We have good evidence for how nutrition can be part of a primary prevention model for heart disease. And so I'm totally willing to hang out there. 
Um, where my knowledge, you know, uh, and ex domain expertise kind of stops is I don't have a lot of um, expertise in like male urology or areas that like where I know that we do have evidence in things like prostate health and whatnot that we can play a role. It's just not my domain expertise. So I can't speak to it like, um, you know, that confidently, but there's, there's lots of areas that we, I think what happens often is that we end up as naturopathic doctors seeing the, the weird and wonderful cases because those patients are the ones that feel hopeless and feel like, you know, conventional medicine is failing them. So we end up with people on our doorstep that have weird and rare diseases nobody has evidence for how to treat those patients. Right. And, but that's who ends up on our doorstep is the person who feels like medicine has failed them. And that doesn't mean that that should be the group that we focus on in our practices. We actually have the greatest role to play in the, like the average Jane's health, right? Like the, 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 the most common health conditions are actually the things that we can help with the most. But because the person who lands on our doorstep is often the zebra, not the horse, we often in our, in our culture of naturopathic medicine end up talking about the zebras, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and I'll give you an example. Like we talk about like methylation defects in genetics and these, these like very, very like specific conditions in medicine when the amount of evidence we have over here to how to help everyone is so profound like, I want to be over here. I want to help thousands and thousands and thousands of patients. I want the two that have that, you know, condition to get better too. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying from like a, from an evidence perspective, I want to just hang out over here where we have thousands of research articles on nutrition that can support all patients. I think we sometimes as a culture get sucked into the treating everybody as this unique zebra that we forget to back up and say like, what does the greater body of literature say about integrative medicine? It actually says wonderful things. We just have to back up and treat everyone. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I totally get that. And to me, I feel like when we get those more rare um, patients, to me, I feel like a lot of our role is just helping them like even just better understand what those fundamentals are, you know, that kind of got left to the wayside. And that's something that I see, you know, with like biohacking and everything. It's like, okay, but like, have you, are you drinking enough water? You know what I mean? Like bed. you don't have to biohack anything. If you go to bed, yeah, well, and that's, that's what I mean. It's like, I, and I feel like, um, just from, you know, the culture as a whole, like, we tend to get so caught up in that minutia that we forget like, oh yeah, these things, you know, are evidence-based, like you said, sleep <laughs> that can make a profound difference in my health. And yet we get so caught up. I know you recently did an episode on like supplementation, you know, and often we see people and they bring like a duffel bag in of the supplements that they're on you know, trying to biohack their way to better health. And it's like, but are you sleeping? Like, are you, <laughs> you know, what are, you know, what are those? So sometimes to me, I feel like a lot of our role is just redirecting people to what the, those foundations are. And I think just like what you're saying, we do so well in that preventative 
um, aspect where we get that time to, to speak with people about their behaviors and their choices that a lot that I think is the missing gap um, in, in medicine, you know, right now as a whole, which is when you think of chronic disease and chronic illness, a lot of that is preventable things that we can do if you just have that conversation with someone to help them, you know, figure out what's missing here. I'm really glad that you spoke to that because, you know, that to me is why, that's why I went into naturopathic medicine is to fill that gap that there is, right? With the prevent, there's just so much over here that, um, that needs tweaking. Like we need help, right? Um, on that preventative side. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm curious, like, how do you then implement, like, what does it look like to be, you've spoken a little bit to it, but in practice, what does it look like to have an evidence-based practice? How much time are you spending on research? All of those sort of elements that come in, you know, inevitably come into having an evidence-based practice. What does that look like for, for you? Ooh, how much time do I spend on research? Um, <laughs> right, yours might be a little skewed just because of, you know, right. the competent clinician. Cry. No, um, I mean, part of it is I've got really great like systems and yeah. I've also been at this game for a long time, right? Mm-hmm. So I've watched the research develop and that's, that's where, I mean, we talk about this inside my membership for NDs, which is the competent clinician is that, you know, your knowledge construct on a condition or on something in medicine is not built from reading one study. It's not built from going to one seminar, right? It's the continuous asking of questions, researching those questions, evaluating the research, and then constructing or maybe even deconstructing your knowledge on that question over and over and over and over so that you can talk confidently about it. Like, yes, If you read one really great randomized control trial that says, I don't know why I'm I'm picking on melatonin because I spent the morning reviewing some evidence on melatonin and the different secretion patterns in perimenopause versus menopause. So that's why this is my my example for the day. But if you read a randomized control trial that uses three milligrams of melatonin in women in menopause and they sleep better, that's cool, right? And you now know it. I'm saying in air quotes, like you know it but you don't like know it, right? Knowing it is knowing why it works, knowing how it works, knowing who it isn't going to work in, knowing under what circumstances we would and wouldn't use that as a first line therapy, knowing when have we exhausted the benefit of it, knowing the time it takes for the patient to feel the benefit of it, knowing when you have to co-care with it with something else, knowing if it interacts with the things they're already doing. So one of the greatest challenges we have in research is how do we take that paper that says in these 50 women, we gave them melatonin and they slept better and put that into a clinical decision-making model. That's where the gap is, right? So in school, you learn on a multiple choice test, what do we give patients for sleep? Oh, it's melatonin. I'm going to circle it. But in clinical practice, it's part of a web of information and you have to have a construct of, of knowledge around that topic in order to be able to move with the web of your patient, right? Are they also taking other meds? Do they also have hot flashes? Do they, have they tried melatonin before, right? Like 
all of that has to actually come into your clinical decision making. And that's our greatest gap in education for practitioners is that we teach them on paper what works and then we throw them into the wolves to try and figure out how to do it clinically. Mm-hmm. And so for me, like the amount of time that I've spent on some of these topics is, you know, when a new paper comes out, I'm like, oh yeah, that fits with what our current understanding is of this topic. Or, oh, this is actually contrary to the last article that was published. Why? So when I say I'm spending time on research, it's that it's been built over decades of research on some of these topics, endometriosis being one of them. I've been working on that topic since 2002. It was my undergrad autoimmune research paper at that time, which we now know it's not a true autoimmune condition, but at that time we were starting to research that. That's a long time that I've spent on that topic. What I want to give to practitioners is that ability to deconstruct their own knowledge and rebuild it when, as they learn new things and to be able to ask those good questions and not just what do we got for sleep? I'm going to type that into PubMed you have to be able to think about everything a lot more uh, complexly in order to be able to create the best solution for your patient. So how much time do I spend on research in a week? I don't know, 15 hours, 20 hours, it depends. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's continuously building on knowledge that I've spent years developing. And so it's, you know, I, I get to keep adding to a body of knowledge that I have versus there's very, it's very rare that I'm starting from scratch on any particular condition, but I also have systems to make that all happen for myself. So I'm excellent at managing refer- my references. I use a reference management system. I, you know, I, I have uh, articles come to me every week that have been tagged and flagged that are appropriate for my areas of interest that then can get categorized and and organized in a way that allows me to uh, come back to them at a later date. Um, You know, continuously building on these these treatment plans and protocols for patients, which is what we share inside the Confident Clinician. And so that we're always sort of building on this body of knowledge so that I don't feel like I have to research every individual patient. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where, now I'm going on a huge caffeine-induced tangent, that's where we really, you know, have led NDs astray is that in school they go, you know, here's Julie and Julie has these problems, go research Julie. And so then when new graduates graduate, they go, oh my God, now I have to research Julie and Maria and Stephanie. There's no way I'm going to be able to make that all happen in a week. I can only see three people a week, right? I can see 50 people a week in three days. And it's because I'm never researching Julie. (laughs) I'm researching perimenopausal insomnia, right? And so then every person who walks through the door who has perimenopausal insomnia, I know what to do, right? I know how to integrate those treatment options into all of those women's plans. So when I say I spend all that time researching, that's not on individual patient care, or it's very rare that I like have to take one patient's case and like really break it down. I mean, sometimes it happens, but I'm researching like the body of evidence as a whole, which means that I can continue to apply it in those unique situations for each patient, but I'm not spending hours researching one person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so how, um, like, how have you seen that help Um, your practice from both a clinical and a business perspective then? 
Well, A, it allows you to focus on like the business growth where you have to, right? I figured out from a very, at the very beginning of my practice that I needed to see a lot of new patients in order for the model that I want to work with people for that to actually be functional and work. I would rather see 20 people three times than three people 20 times, Mm. right? And, And some NDs want to see people every two weeks. I just didn't want to do that. I don't want to convince someone that they have to come and see me every two weeks. That's also not long enough for them to like feel any better. And so I just never wanted to like keep having that conversation. Um, But if the studies on Chase Tree say it takes eight to 12 weeks to see benefit, I wanted to give them eight to 12 weeks between our appointments, right? But when I did the math on that, I needed to see about 200 new patients a year in order for that to pan out which meant that I needed to invest my time in the business side of my practice and not spend 10,000 hours researching Julie. Mm-hmm. And so from the beginning, I realized that like I needed to invest in a communication strategy with new patients. I needed to you know, invest in attracting people into my world so that they know, like, and trust me as a practitioner to then bring them in as new patients versus me spending 25 hours coming up with what we're going to do with Julie every two weeks, right? Like that's just not how I wanted to to spend my time. Um, And so from a business perspective, that's where I I put all of my effort and energy at the beginning was attracting new patients. I mean, now my patients, my practice is closed. Now I don't see new patients or I haven't in um, like three or four months. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I don't know when we're going to reopen that. So I know, like I did hit a ceiling. You can only see 220 new patients a year for so long. And then all of a sudden you're Um, but from a business perspective, like that's where I invested my time was like, how can I showcase what it's like to work with me? What evidence-based integrative practice is, how can I create relationships with other practitioners like medical doctors? That's where I put all my time. Um, and then this constant ongoing research on the conditions I'm interested in, meant I always knew what to do with my patients, right? I always had the best evidence to give them for their their treatment plans. Mm-hmm. So then I'm curious, just for those who are like, okay, so 20 hours on research, three days of, <laughs> of, mm-hmm. of yeah, of the seeing patients. The math on this is not making right? sense. <laughs> so, no, so I'm just curious, right? For people to like kind of wrap their mind around, okay, well, what does this actually look like then? You know, maybe this is why you're taking four weeks off <laughs> or relatively. <laughs> um, but you know, like what is, what does that kind of look like just for does people? Does my week actually there? look? Yeah. yeah. So I don't do 20 hours right now um, of, of ongoing research, although it's higher than it maybe was two years ago. And part of that is from the confident clinician. That's like my secret sauce lives in me with my laptop with PubMed and a cup of coffee, right? Like that's, that's where I need to hang out more. I think my, my impact can be greater if I'm supporting clinicians in their work, because then they can all go see a thousand people and impact um, people's health. I know my impact is going to be greater the more time I spend working with clinicians versus one-on-one with patients. So my research time is high right now because I'm deeply invested in growing the group of clinicians who are part of the confident clinician. Um, and I'm now right now only seeing patients two days per week. Um, although I've lived at three days per week always in my career. So that to me was a full practice 
seeing patients three days per week. Um, I now healthily take a lunch, but there were lots of years where I did not, I literally would just see patients from like 8.30 in the morning till four o'clock in the afternoon straight, three days per week. There were, there were years where that was my, was my life. And then the other two days of the week, I spent time researching. So when I say 20 hours, like let's, okay, let's make it less than that. Let's make it 10. In those 10 hours, as part of my research, I'm also recording a podcast on that topic. I'm also writing a blog post or doing other contract-based work that I've been hired to do by companies that to write for them in an evidence-based fashion. I, my like whole mantra is that nothing can be used once, right? I'm never going to do a thing and then that's it. Mm -hmm. I, you know, gave a presentation for naturopathic doctors on miscarriage and then took all of the information and wrote a book. I, you know, would de will develop something for a patient and then we put it on the back end of the confident clinician for my clinicians to use. I, you know, research something in depth for the confident clinician and then I turn it into a podcast for the public. So within those 10 to 20 hours, I'm including my work for the confident clinician. I'm including all my patient work. I'm including podcast recordings. I'm including all of my writing, right? So it's about two and a half days per week of research-ish work. <laughs> but in that, the, the number of products that we produce as a consequence of my research is really high. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm probably umbrella, like capturing all of that together. But right now, three days per week I spend on the administrative and research side of my business. And then two days per week, I see patients, but I also take like 14 weeks of vacation per year. <laughs> so I have this like massive, like work-life balance thing yeah. figured out. Um, I joke that I want to live this like kind of like quasi semi-retired lifestyle all the time, rather than waiting until I'm 50 and then, you know, tapping out. So I feel that. <laughs> I am with you there. Um, and I love that because, you know, I've heard that so many times of just making sure, you know, when you um, create something like repurpose it. Right. And I think that saves on time and energy. Right. Which are kind of like the two main resources that we're dealing with. <laughs> and there's so many media right now for how to share information. I think only envisioning your information being given to our patient, Julie, we've got Julie and melatonin. Those are my two. Yeah. <laughs> but when you are giving that information to that one patient, like that entrepreneurial side of our brain needs to go, how else can I use all that time that I've spent getting ready for this one woman? Mm -hmm. How, how do I leverage myself and, and that message to reach a broader audience? Um, or use this in a way that's going to impact more people than one person. Because I think part of the burnout of naturopathic medicine is patients or practitioners imagine that they're making like X amount of dollars for their patient visit and how many hours it took for them to get ready for it. Mm -hmm. Right. But what if all of that time that you spent was you leveraging yourself and the information that you've created to impact in a bigger way, then suddenly like that feels like a great trade. Right. Yep. Yeah. And I think you're totally right. Um, just based on kind of the model that we're taught, it's like, yes, yeah, spend 20 hours um, focusing on Julie, right? Julie. Learning, yes. <laughs> telling her about <laughs> melatonin and, um, 
and then yeah and then it's like okay well now I only have five more hours of my week left (laughs) (laughs) yeah 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 to try to focus on the business side so I can get more of those (laughs) um yeah so I think you're you're totally right what are some other systems or tips that you may have for people um just to help balance that uh that research side of things while also being able to see a a higher quantity of people to make practice more sustainable for them, you know, when, you know, because I I know that a lot of practitioners reach that burnout point, right? Like, how do we prevent that? What other systems do you have that kind of have helped you? Help that? I mean, I have a great, and I think we can, we'll share it right in the Mm -hmm. show notes. I have a great downloadable resource for how to get more efficient at research. That's, that's an easy one. Um, you know, I think some of the barriers to practitioners researching is they're like, well, Jordan, I typed in menopause and sleep and then got 6,000 results. Like I just, I'm, I don't know how to go through all of that. So the, the resource that I have for practitioners, um, it's four hacks on how to navigate PubMed in a more efficient way. That's a, that's a really great place to start. But like when I think big picture business-wise, I think NDs wait too long to hire. Mm. I think we imagine that we need to answer the phone, that we need to respond to those emails, that we need to be the one to send the facts, that we need to be the one that does X, Y, and Z jobs when, or we imagine that we can't afford to, you know, hire someone in to support you. Um, I have a massive team and I do feel like that has allowed me to, um, you know, get to the place where I am now in my career, where I keep my, my time is so coveted and we can really leverage my skills in a, in a very productive way now, because I don't, I've delegated away all of those tasks. And I didn't get to this level of support overnight. It started with, okay, I got to stop answering the phone, right? Like it, every time the phone rings, that's, you know, you know, money in the, in the bank account for the practice, but only if I can see people, right. Only if like that phone call turns into a visit. And so if I'm on the phone and not in a visit, this doesn't work. Um, and so it started from there, me realizing that unless I was seeing patients, then the math didn't work. And so I started slowly getting rid of all the jobs that got in the way of me seeing patients and to the point where now we have a massive support team um, in my business that allows me to literally just live in my zone of genius all the time or be seeing patients and there's nothing else that happens in my day. Um, That's how I can see so many people. People are like, well, how do you how do you go home at the end of the day after you've seen 15 people and not like take your work home with you? I'm like, oh, cause there was no work left, mm-hmm. right? I finished my charts. I gave all my notes to the staff. They managed all the rest of it and I go home. It's when you are the sole person responsible for the facts, the email, the invoice, the call, the this, the that, that of course you'll never sleep, right? Because you're mm-hmm. A, you're going to make mistakes right. and you need to be able to rely on other people to help support you in, in those areas. Um, and so to me, I think we wait way too long to hire infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Who do you like for, for you at least, who was that first hire? It sounds like. Yeah. My first hire was like a very, very part-time receptionist who answered the phone, right? Very basic skill level. 
could answer the phone, could rebook people at the end of my appointments so that I could bookend my day, right? So basically when I worked alone, I booked time in between every patient to do the administrative work. And then I realized, I'm like, wait, in an eight hour day, like there's like three hours where I can't see anybody because we're booking 15 minutes in between every patient. If we got rid of all of that, this was the beginning of me taking the lunch. If we get rid of all of that time and we pay someone to do those jobs, what happens? Mm-hmm. Right? And the math was like, okay, well, obviously we should just pay someone to check the patient out, Jordan, and not have you do it. And that's how it started, right? It was like, very basic. It was just getting rid of the gaps in my schedule and the, and having, and then it evolved to, I never worked on Wednesdays because I was at the university on Wednesdays, but then my Thursdays would fall apart, right? Because people would call on Wednesday and cancel and no one was there to answer the phone. So I went from somebody and like checking patients out so that I could get rid of all the gaps in my schedule to someone has to sit there on Wednesday. Otherwise, Thursday is a dumpster fire. (laughs) And so then paying that person to sit there on Wednesday meant Thursday didn't fall apart. And it started from there. And so I just like continuously reevaluated where the gaps were and the barriers to me having a full schedule. I need to write a blog, but I can't write a blog because I'm doing ordering. Someone else has to do ordering so I can write a blog. Mm -hmm. Blogs bring people in through the door. Ordering doesn't. And whatever it was that was getting in the way of me seeing patients or attracting patients started to be delegated away. And then I slowly started hiring people with a skill set that was well beyond mine in certain areas. So I have paid, uh, now I have team members who are better copywriters than I am, or at least better editors than I am because I can't spell. Um, and now they have like their better time management, better organization, better at, you know, patient, uh, communication. They're better than me at all of those things, which is great. Um, But it started with like, how do I just get rid of these tasks on my plate? Um, And sometimes when we look at a big clinic, you go, oh my God, Jordan, you have 120 hours of staff support per week. I could never afford that. You don't have to. Mm -hmm. That took me seven years to grow into. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there was just one more tip that I wanted, because I remember you mentioning this um, and I, it's, small, but I thought it was great um, about, you know, what do you do when you're like listening to a CEU or whatever, you know, researching that helps you translate it to patient care? When I'm listening to like a CE course or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Like to me, and I've, I've used this tagline in the confident clinician, I'm like, learning is a contact sport. So again, so often we sit there and we like absorb the information and we're like, cool. And then we go back to work and we do what we've always done. Mm-hmm. Right. And I want that learning process to feel different. I want it to be as exciting as like what it is when you're like a toddler and you learn something new, right? You incorporate the new thing because it's great, but that only happens if you are viewing your learning in that way, right? I don't want people to feel like they're checking a box when they do CE. Like it shouldn't be like, okay, well, I did it. Great. I'm done. CE is this like opportunity to, you know, I would say like deconstruct your own knowledge and reconstruct it better. And so I, when I CE or when I'm, you know, knee deep in new research or something that's maybe changing the way I think about something, I have patient templates open. 
and I'm editing them as I go to be like, ooh, our understanding of this has shifted. I'm going to put that in here. Or I've got Canva open and I'm making three social media posts while I listen to this new information. Because of course, while we're listening, we get new ideas. I even wrote down while we're talking. <laughs> you don't have to biohack anything. You just have to go to bed. That will be an <laughs> Exactly. <post>. exactly. Yep. <laughs> but it's like that idea that like, I'm not just here, right? I'm like, I'm in it, especially and even if someone else is doing the, the teaching, like I want to be in it with them and think and question it and pull up the study and flag it in my reference manager and throw it into a treatment protocol. That's how I want clinicians to think about CE. It's not checking a box so that you can be like, well, I can renew my license. I sat through a boring lecture for two hours. <laughs> it should be like continuously evolving what you do and making you excited about what your role is with patients. That's how I want it to feel. Mm -hmm. And so when I'm learning, I'm like in it. And, and that's what is the time saver later is that I never have to go back and read that study again because I'm so in it that now it's in, now it's in my knowledge base. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I remember you talking about that once. I'm like, oh, that's how we should just be doing everything. Right. Um, and so thank you for, for touching on that. Um, and I do want to make sure. So when I was, you know, when I first got licensed, the two main priorities for me were, okay, how do I figure this business stuff out? <laughs> and then wanting to make sure that I was clinically sound. Like I wanted to make sure that I had as many resources as I could clinically. Right. And so, you know, I found my business, um, support and then, um, and then the, your, your information came up for the confident clinician. I'm like, this is perfect. This is the other piece to the puzzle that I'm looking for. So I'm hoping, can you just tell people a little bit just briefly about the confident clinician, um, and also where people can, you know, tag along with you. Sure. So yeah, the Confident Clinician is, it's a membership-based uh, education platform for naturopathic doctors primarily, but we have many other types of integrated health practitioners in our gang. Um, and we now have over 300 practitioners who are part of our sort of ecosystem, which is amazing. The, the premise of it is, is that we do deep dives on medical conditions every month where I, I wanted it to feel like sort of practice in a box. That's how I wanted it to feel. So at the end of a month between the live coaching calls, they're recorded and transcribed and searchable and all the things, um, we're really just leveraging tech, right? To help it create a, a repository of uh, protocols and information and tools for practitioners. But at the end of every month, I wanted practitioners to just feel more confident about a condition. So if we tackle perimenopause, which we're knee deep in right now, it's from start to finish. How do we assess those patients? What's our role to play with them? What lab tests are you running? What circumstances are we not okay with the reference ranges, right? Because there's some evidence that Maybe we should be more critical about reference ranges and, and let's talk about that. What are your you know, intervention strategies? What does nutrition look like for these patients? And then we hand clinicians my handouts for my patients, the reference, like the, the letters that we send to their specialists. We give them additional resources and learning materials so that if they needed to revisit this, this topic that 
they could feel so confident about it um, by the end of that month. And, and when we go through that learning process together as a group, we spend time on each topic so that you do have this like inner confidence about it. So you're not just saying, okay, it's three milligrams of melatonin. If you're in perimenopause, my clinicians at the end go, okay, we know that melatonin secretion patterns change as women age and it's influenced by, you know, falling estrogen levels. And if we, this is the data on observation, this is the data on intervention. This is how it fits. This is how long it takes for them to get better. These are the things they walk away from those seminars knowing, and they never forget it, right? Like that's not information that you forget. And that's kind of my goal is that we're continuously evolving how good these clinicians are, which is honestly your best business strategy ever is just to be really good. Um, and then in addition to that, twice a year, we offer intensive program where we do a deep dive on a particular condition over a series of days. And so our fall term in 2021 is we're looking at uh, fertility in the spring of 2022, we're diving into pregnancy related health uh, and complications. Um, and so when, when practitioners subscribe, so we take practitioners in uh, formally two times a year, although if you ever join us for one of the intensives, we do let people join after uh, being with us for an intensive weekend. So technically, I suppose you can join four times per year. Um, we make clinicians hang with us for six months minimum. And, and the reason for that is it takes some time to learn. I don't want people to dip their toe in and be like, Ooh, this evidence thing's not for me. We have to lean into that and be willing to be vulnerable and relearn how to learn and hang for six months. And so mm -hmm. that's why we've built it as this membership based platform. So rather than people like taking these a la carte courses, they're in a, in a process to get better. We have videos for how to get better as a researcher. We have Ask Me Anything podcasts so that we can walk through some clinical challenges about Julie, right? So we do talk about that one, one case, um, but really like the whole system of it is to just create more evidence-based practitioners because I believe that that's where we're going to have the greatest impact. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I'm guessing, cause usually I ask, you know, what is your hope for the future of naturopathic medicine? But I think that you've kind of clarified, you know, what that is and just making sure that we're really, um, you know, honed in on that, the evidence side of things. Is that yeah, correct? It, that's <laughs> totally it. That's my, my big vision for naturopathic medicine is that when a patient goes to see their medical doctor, their medical doctor doesn't turn their nose up at the profession. Mm -hmm. That's my biggest goal. And I think as long as we hang out in, you know, less evidence-based or less evidence-informed decision-making, that's always going to be the case. I don't want to be at odds with Western medicine. I think they're both beautiful. I think mm -hmm. we need to hang out together. I think we need to be on the same team, speak the same language, read the same papers. That's what I want um, for it. I think it benefits the profession at large if we all, uh, play in that sandbox. And so that's, that's what I actually want. Um, you asked where to find me and I didn't really say that. So, um, there, you can certainly follow me on Instagram. Like, I think that's a great place where I'm sharing lots of, um, great information. If we ever open registration for anything, we do post it there, um, at which you can find me at, at Dr. Jordan ND. Um, we do have a website for the confident clinician, the confident clinician club.com, which if you're not a member, you're going to get redirected to our wait list there, but that's a great place to put your name. If this is something that is on your future plan list, 
Um, but I also, I think we should share that uh, PubMed hacks because that is such a pain point for practitioners. I wanted to be able to share that information so that you can, whatever your you know goals and, and niche is, is that you feel like you have better tools to be a bit more evidence-based. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so we will make sure to link all of those in the description box. Thank you so much, Dr. Jordan, for your time here today and just for all that you're doing for our community at large. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Such an inspiration. Um, I really appreciate your work. So thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. All right. Well, you have a good rest of your day and thank you all for tuning in and listening, watching. Please be sure to like, share, and subscribe to help keep the inspiration going. As always, be well and stay inspired.